We really think European butter from France is the best butter. And our friend, the expert baker and best-selling cookbook author David Leibovitz agrees. Check out our recent episode with David to find out how he cooks with quality butter. And for recipes, tips, and cooking advice, go to tasteeurope.com. When I work with the president, very often we started a meal with an egg. Here uh, in, the, in the U.S., we tend to use eggs only for breakfast or brunch, maybe. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm Editor-in-Chief Matt Rodbard, here with Senior Editor Anna Hiesel. A few years ago, Joshua David Stein wrote an essay for Taste about a short video clip that was filmed for an instructional cooking DVD in the 90s that millions of people around the world have watched and rewatched again. It's actually the video clip that taught me how to make an omelet. It might even be the video clip that taught you how to make an omelet. On today's episode of the Taste podcast, I sit down with the 85-year-old chef behind this video clip, Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin has cooked for presidents and prime ministers and has taught generations of television audiences audiences how to cook seasonally and economically. We talked about what he's been cooking, eating, and painting lately, and how his omelet technique has changed over the years. And if you haven't read Joshua David Stein's essay about Jacques Pepin's omelet video, you can find it on tastecooking.com or in the 2020 edition of Best American Food Writing. Here's me talking to Jacques. Jacques, thank you so much for joining me on the Taste Podcast. You're, of course, an accomplished chef, author, and television host. But on top of all of these qualifications, a lot of people know you as kind of the ultimate authority on eggs. My dad has been cooking a lot of your egg techniques over the course of the pandemic. And there's, of course, a very famous video of you from a segment from the 90s on YouTube cooking two styles of omelet. I wanted to ask, why are eggs an interesting medium to you? And why do you think people should learn how to cook them properly? Well, to start with, they are very expensive. They're extremely versatile. You can do so many. They're available to most people in the world from the poorest country to the richest one. Uh, there is no food which is as uh, as secret as an egg, according to MFK Fisher. <laughs> and it's true. You can keep an egg for three weeks, a month. You know, it's easy, as I said, very expensive. And uh, you can do hundreds of dishes. When I was a kid, certainly during the war, we get our protein from eggs much more than from meat. Meat was kind of rare maybe once a week. And when we had meat, it was a piece of uh, you know, sausage that my mother uh, browned one way or the other to add potato to it, to add all kind of other thing. Meat was basically a flavoring agent. But egg, gratin of eggs, you know, with, uh, with cheese, gratin of eggs, with spinach, with sweet chard, with mushroom, with egg poached. And, you know, in classic French cooking, when I work with the president, very often we started a meal with an egg. 
Here uh, in, in the US, we tend to use eggs only for breakfast or brunch, maybe. But uh, for a enough cocotte, you know, cocotte eggs, which is cooked in a, in a little, uh, like a little souffle mold. So we cover the bottom with herbs. Sometimes you have truffle. Sometimes very elegantly, you push the eggs on top to serve that or shrimp. Oh, the first course, it's an excellent meat, which I do often for, for you know, elegant dinner. So yes, eggs is... Uh, Maybe my favorite food of all. So, When it comes to cooking eggs, I mean, are you still mostly cooking these techniques that you learned as a young chef? Or has your technique evolved over the course of your career? Are you still learning new egg well, tricks, in other words? Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, a good question, but it's kind of very uh, insidious. You know, you change, but you don't realize you change. I mean, I know I eat differently than than I did 30, 40 years ago. Uh, just, uh, you know, your metabolism change, you get older. Uh, maybe uh, other young chef, you tend to add and to add and to add to the dish. And as an old chef, you kind of remove, remove, remove all the embellishment of the dish to be left with something more essential. So, you know, you change, of course, uh, and uh, you absorb the type of culture, the type of cuisine. And I never put my my finger exactly on it. You know, it's a process which has always been part of me and I've been in the kitchen over 70 years now. So 72 years also professionally, very, yeah. Speaking of which, I mean, so one of the things that has changed probably since you started out as a cook and has changed even over the course of, you know, the time that I've been cooking is that cookware has evolved so much. Oh, yes. And just like the quality of nonstick pans that you could use for cooking eggs. How important is the cookware itself when you're oh, yeah. doing you some kidding? of these techniques? When I work at the Plaza in Paris or at Fouquet's, so I was the breakfast chef there at some point. So, you know, making omelette in the morning, that type of stuff. Well, I had a, a cast iron pan you know, which I seasoned very carefully, scrub it with salt, you know, and kept it in my closet. Because someone would take it and they saute a piece of fish in it. And the whole thing has to be totally re-seasoned and all that. So, you know, it was a big deal to keep your uh, your skillet or whatever without sticking. Now, you know, with no stick pan, I mean, it's a, it's a breeze. I have, a, I still have that old skillet pan hanging on the wall here. Uh, and it's a beautiful sway, you know, so it makes a nice omelet. I don't use it, however, and I don't use it because it's six and it's six because I don't use it. So it's, it's a vicious circle. <laughs> you know, so, so anyway, yes, I, I use, uh, well, my great thing, I use non-stick aluminum foil, for example. That's great. I put it on every tray. So the equipment, all of that has changed greatly. And it used to be more expensive. Now it's relatively inexpensive. The last year and a half has really put a particular spotlight on the importance of home cooking, obviously as a way for us all to sustain ourselves, but also to educate ourselves and even to sort of entertain ourselves, I would say. Other than eggs, what have you been cooking the most over the last year and a half? And is there anything new that you've learned how to cook for the first time? Well, this is a big question. <laughs> I have been cooking usually what's in my refrigerator, what's in my freezer, what's in the pantry, what's at the market. Uh, I'm always defined by, by this, of course, defined by the season as well. People don't realize that, uh, you know, uh, in full summer, uh, this is where the tomato are really good to taste. In addition, they are the best nutritionally because uh, they are rich maturity. And thirdly, more importantly, they are the cheapest. 
So, you know, why not you know, follow the season? That's where the, the food is the best and the cheapest and in great quantity. So, yes, I do follow that. My daughter is the one showing uh, those uh, Facebook shows that we've done for like a year and a half. And I think we've done 220. And uh, so sometimes she tells me, could you do some of this or that too? Or like, for example, we have a foundation that we work with community kitchen uh, to teach people who have been kind of uh, disenfranchised by life, like people who come out of jail, uh, homeless people, you know, former drug addicts, veterans, and so forth. So those people are not young, too. And often those people, too, get to go to to the food pantry to get food. So my, my son-in-law told me, why don't you do a, a series of recipes? I'm going to give you stuff. So he get me a whole bag of uh, like canned can beans, uh, canned string beans, rather, canned chicken, canned salmon, canned stuff that I don't really use. So I use those because that's what people uh, would get like that, to show people to cook on a budget with something inexpensive. And there is nothing nothing wrong with any of those type of cooking, you know. I actually, I was going to ask you about canned food because I've been following some of your recent videos that you've um, been publishing on Facebook and Instagram and on YouTube and I saw a really cool video involving canned tuna. I saw a cool, simple pasta that you made with anchovies um, and garlic. Are you a big canned fish person? And what are your favorites? I don't think that, uh, can, but I mean, I have plenty canned in my pantry. And certainly from, from uh, uh, anchovy filet to tuna to, to uh, mackerel to sardine, but I don't know what to have for lunch. I have a few slices of tomato, uh, a few leaves of lettuce. I open a can of sardine, put a bit of olive oil on top. Yeah, sardine, tuna, all of it. And beans. I mean, from black beans to red kidney beans to cannellini beans to chickpeas to any of those, canned tomato, uh, canned uh, tomato paste, and so forth. All of those are as good, sometimes better than what you get fresh, unless you get it very fresh. You know, So there is nothing wrong with... Uh, there's nothing wrong with anything, you know, the results is the what counts, you know. Yeah. So you've been making instructional videos like the ones we just spoke about for decades now, really. Um, and now, I mean, so much has changed. Pretty much anyone with a cell phone and a TikTok account can make a cooking video. Yes. You don't need like a TV crew like you used to. Um, so... Do you watch any of these new cooking videos on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, all of these online I, outlets? I, I don't really look at uh, much of this myself. I don't even look at mine, to tell you the truth. But uh, certainly, uh, I, I have done 13 series of 26 shows with KQED, the PBS station in San Francisco, and other in New York for the last uh, 35 years. And I still remember uh, the last time I did a series five, six years ago, uh, KQED had to raise $1.3 million to do 26 shows that we did with a book with it. Wow, I do those videos there. We are two people in the kitchen. It's Tom Hopkins with my friend. He lives in town here. He's a professional photographer. And he's done my, he's done my book for 30, 38 years. And he does video as well. So uh, he's the one who, has, who does my, uh, my art site also. So, but Tom comes here, 
he put a, a, a he put a camera on a, a tripod that I looked at, and then with his hand the telephone he goes above my head to take close up, and I cook and I do the dishes. So there is two people in the kitchen. There is Tom and me. So those show compare I say one point three million dollars to do a series. Uh, I go to the market and uh, get uh, for $150, $200, whatever, maybe a bit more. We usually do 10 shows in one day when they come. Those shows are five, six minutes, you know, they are not long. But they cost basically nothing, you know. So, uh, yes, and, and it's and it's pretty good. I mean, the, the work of the camera, the handheld camera, a telephone too, it's really amazing, you know. What do you think about sort of the democratization of cooking videos um, just because people now can make videos on their cell phones? Because on the one hand, it means that people for free can often watch professional cooks show them a few skills that they maybe in other generations would have to go to culinary school for. But also there's so many videos now. Right. Absolutely. There is a different type of cooking. You know, I work with Julia Childford. 50 years or people like James Beard. Julia always say, I am not a professional chef. James Beard always say, I'm not a professional chef and many others. A professional chef is someone in the kitchen, it's 10 o'clock in the morning and at 12 o'clock you have 100 people sitting down to eat. So it's not a question of cooking uh, something interesting, but you have to have the speed, the production and all that, which is something else. So a professional chef has to be very trained uh, with technique. Uh, and it's a question of repeat, repeat, repeat to be able to do something very fast. Uh, so a professional chef is first for me a technician. And then if you happen to have talent and to go somewhere else. That's not the case for a home cook. Now, I know a fair amount of professional chefs who are very good technicians and are relatively lousy cook. The food is okay, but never fantastic. Conversely, I know home cook who are fantastic cook with the taste. The kitchen may look like a disaster, thing left over, too much stuff, too, because you don't, you don't have the speed and the, the use. So those are two different types of things, you know. So people who cook at home, uh, you know, with those video, of course, it's perfectly fine. Now, the video that I do, four or five minute video that I show, this is not to use really in a restaurant in production. It's something else. It's to try to make people's life easier using whatever you have in your refrigerator or something like that. You know? Yeah, I'm, and going back, to Julia Child, I think part of what compelled so many people about her was not just the technical skill and the knowledge, but also just pure enthusiasm about French cuisine. It was just infectious. It got so many people interested sure, in this cuisine. Well, you know, that's very important. You know, you have to cook with love. You cannot cook indifferently. You know, uh, you have to put passion in it. You have to put love. And maybe cooking is maybe the purest expression of what love is. Because you cook for your kid or your mother or your grandfather, even a stranger. I mean, there is nothing else attached to it except to give something to people. So, yes, cooking is... Uh, and that's what happened a lot, maybe, with the pandemic. I mean, people getting close together and stuck. That, I'm sure that created a lot of divorce. But it also created a lot of people getting together, maybe for the first time and starting to cook together. I mean, for me, in my family, it was always part of it. When my daughter Claudine, who's in her 50s now, but when she was a year and a half, I hold her in my arm and make her stir the pot. So she stirred, you know, with me. So she ate it because she, quote, made it with that, you know. So when I had my granddaughter coming, she 
stand on a little stool next to me. Now she's taller than me, but uh, so I tell her, give me a bowl, give me that, give me the salad. Do you think it's clean enough? Let's get some parsley. So we get parsley in the, in the garden. I said, test it. She said, no, that's chive. No, no, that's parsley. Test that one. That's tarragon too. Come back. I take her to the market. I say, I need tomato. Buy them. You sure they are ripe? Did you smell them? Those pear. You smell those pears? They are ripe? So she touched the pear. She touched the tomato. Come back. Cook with me. Stand. And that created a, a canvas for a conversation. You know, not only you talk about this, but then you sit down and eat the food and talk. And one subject bring another subject. You know, it's very difficult with kids now, which are attached to their iPhone and, uh, you know, they don't say anything. So it's very important to create that type of communication and cooking does that. Yeah, I think so. And I think so many people I got to have that same experience just in the last year and a half of spending so much time at home cooking more meals, spending time with their family. You've also been doing quite a bit of painting. Is that right? Yes, I did quite a lot, but I've been painting for, I have painting from 1961 to, I mean, so, but probably more now. In fact, I have a, an art show coming in the, in, Stanf- uh, in uh, I forget where, near Greenwich. Stanford. <laughs> uh, in Stanford, in, uh, in, no- in uh, November. Yeah, the end of November. So, yes, and uh, Tom, my friend, with. The photographer, as I said, also run. Uh, I am very lucky because I would never have done an art site or doing this study. He did it. I would never have done Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. Or the Jacques <laughs> Pippin Foundation. My daughter did it. My son-in-law did it. So I've been very lucky this way. Yeah, you're surrounding yourself with the right people. I wanted to ask you, I mean, alongside Julia Child, you're often credited as one of the foremost experts in French cooking. If you had to sort of do your whole career over again and choose a cuisine other than French to become an expert in, what do you think you would choose? Okay, well, let me tell you something. I am looked at often, as you say, as maybe the quintessential French chef. Now you open my book on like page 32, I have a black bean soup with, uh, with uh, cilantro and, uh, and uh, chopped eggs uh, on top of it or banana. You know? Then the next page, I have a southern fried chicken. Then two pages later, I have a, a, you know, a, a Connecticut uh, lobster roll. And, uh, and then I have a Shirashi sushi. I am probably, after 32 books that I've done and hundreds of television shows, I have never been very chauvinistic about French cooking. The technique is different. But uh, so I'm, I see myself probably as a quintessential American chef now because uh, I, I don't really have that much French, purely French food in what I do, you know, anymore. Well, us Americans are impressed by the accent, of course. Oh, I have an accent? <laughs> it's Connecticut. Connecticut accent. Right. See, your, the, the Yankee your, draw. Your Connecticut yeah. accident, accent, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So you, of course, have written many cookbooks by now. Most recently, Jacques Pepin, Quick and Simple, which came out last year. Um, but do you, do you still have a dream cookbook to write? And what's the book that you haven't written yet? Well, I'm in the process of doing two books. So uh, one of them coming out next year, the one uh, the year after. Going back to my painting uh, at home uh, after almost 55 years of marriage, in the, in the early 70s, well, in 69 even, 
we started writing down the menu. When people came to my house, we wrote down what we served them and people signed and said funny things or whatever. Well, that has mushroomed into 12 large books that I have with over 50 years of memory. And I have many people there from my mother to my two brothers to many other people who are gone who are in those books. So this for me is my whole life in those books of uh, memory. I also started, when I did those books of, uh, of, uh, of menu, started to illustrate them. And very often I illustrate them with chicken drawing. So I started, I continued cooking, chi uh, panning chicken and cooking chicken. <laughs> but so now I wanted to do a book of uh, chicken uh, panning. And uh, my editor a couple of years ago said, yeah, that's great. We would love to do it, but we want recipe with it. I said, I don't want to do recipe. I have enough recipe. So I finally, uh, we went in between. So I said, okay, I will uh, write story about chicken and about eggs. Of course, chicken and egg. I don't know. I have a book called uh, The Apprentice which is a kind of cook's memoir that I did years ago. So that would be a bit of the same idea. Whatever I served, maybe the president, whatever I ate when I was in China, to what my mother used to do, friend of mine, funny story. So it's just story about eggs and about chicken, which goes with the book. So this is the first book coming out. The second book is a, is a book on the on budget cooking, kind of show people economy in the kitchen. You know, so uh, I had a column in the New York Times, in the 80s called The Purposeful Cook, which was doing that type of thing. So I'm retaking this to do that, uh, a book again on that. Yeah, you are. I can't wait to read those. Do you keep chickens in your garden? Do you not, have your own chickens? Not, not anymore. I used to, but now I have a beautiful, uh, a beautiful woman from Jamaica, uh, like a quarter of a mile down the road here, who raised chicken and duck and goose sometimes which are free, happy chicken with warm. <laughs> so that's where I get my eggs. That's where I get my chicken too, very often. And your models for painting. Oh yeah, I, I, absolutely. Yeah. I went there to take picture the other day with chicken on my shoulder. They just sit there. Oh, <laughs> little do they know that you have a great idea for some coco vin up your sleeve. Well, coco vin is the old classic French, uh, French classic dishes from Lower Burgundy. That's where I am from. But I, I don't think that I've done a coco vin. Well, I haven't done a coco vin probably in like 30 years. Because usually I've done a poulet au vin. Because the coq is the old hand. And that's why you used to do it as the whole coq. And that's why you use it in a stew cooking for hours. But now most chefs are doing that with a regular chicken here. Well, Jacques, thank you so much for joining me on the Taste Podcast. It was so wonderful to talk to you. Well, thank you very much for having me and happy cooking to you. I'm in the studio with Adam Reiner, the CEO, the creator, the janitor, as he says, of the Restaurant Manifesto. Welcome, Adam. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So we're talking about a story that you wrote for Taste recently that really took off with our audience. It was probably one of our most popular stories in the past few months, and I wanted to have you in to talk about it because there's a bit of an update. Um, the story is The Pastry Chef's Lost Cookbook, and it's about Gina De Palma's Lost Cookbook. First off, Adam, just tell us what is the restaurant manifesto exactly? So it's a website that I created in 2014 
the reason that I created it was because I started to kind of think about how I could impart some of the knowledge that I had uh, earned over the years working in the restaurant world to help people become better diners. I've always thought that dining out is a skill, even though people don't think about it like cooking. Uh, it is something that I think you can improve upon, and the way to do that, I think, is to be just more aware of what's going on. So I kept having this feeling while I was working in restaurants that I would be taking care of people that would do things that I thought were you know, not helping the situation, even though they were asking for something maybe the wrong way, and that there were ways that I could kind of coach them in, in a way. So it started out as kind of like dining tips. I think the word manifesto is a little is a little rigid for what it is. It's really more of kind of become like an ideological pursuit. It's it's trying to again help people understand that they are they have a really important role in creating a great dining experience leaning in instead of leaning back. I think people think about dining out as like, oh, I'm just going to let it all go and it's just going to be great and it's going to come to me. Yeah, but- and those those individuals working there are not uh, human in some ways. Sometimes people get Well, the, this- on the worst end of it, but even even in a, in a harmless way, I think sometimes people don't realize how like maybe ignoring a server's greeting, for example, might be something that really sinks the... The, the tenor of the rest of the meal. Absolutely. So we'll get to the Gina story because I really want to focus on that. But give us during these these pandemic days for our listeners, what's um, something that a a mindful diner can do to really make the difference when dining out at a high, at a high end restaurant or even at a fast casual uh, Chili's or Applebee's? Well, I think the most important thing is is to pay attention to everything and to really acknowledge things that are happening around you. You know, just as a as a basic thought. Uh, People think that asking a server their name is a way of of humanizing them. And actually, I think that it's something that you should never do right away. You should always develop a relationship with the person serving you before you ask them any information about themselves. Um, You know, and I think people have their, again, their heart is in the right place when they do that. Um, but I think this is a time right now where, where the people serving you need even more of that sense of acknowledgement. So like the minute you walk into the restaurant, say hello, you know, say you're excited to be there. That's so important. You, you, can, you can disarm the most grumpy server in the world just by saying we're really excited to be here. I love that tip because it's true and and really um, we as diners sometimes get caught up in the moment of, you know, it's a celebration with family or it's it's we're in a rush and we, we just need to get something in our mouths and we don't think about the human element. So right. just saying a, a quick hello, which many listeners may ultimately do always because they're nice people, but in general, yeah. thinking about these servers and these, these the, the cooks who are coming out too is as more than just serving you, right? Also, yeah, you know, to your point, also think about the people that are taking care of you as partners yeah. in that in that pursuit. You know, if you're if you're really thinking about them as as there to deliver that experience of celebration or, or whatever, then you're you're kind of missing it. And chances are you're going to have like um, a more removed kind of less less of a connection. So you're, you, what I'm saying, I think, in general, is that you, you can really do things actively to, to, in, to improve the connection that you feel with, with, with who's taking care of you. So you wrote this powerful story um, about a lost cookbook of a pastry chef named Gina De Palma. So first off, just describe your relationship with Gina, who she was, and really a little bit of the background of the cookbook that was really lost until you, you discovered it, rediscovered it. Sure. So Gina De Palma was the 
executive pastry chef of Babo restaurant in New York City. It opened in June of 1998. And Gina was the opening pastry chef. Famously Mario Batali's restaurant. Too. That's right. So she had worked at Gramercy Tavern with the, you know, uh, great Claudia Fleming as sort of her, you know, she was her protege. You know, I think that I don't know the exact uh, like series of events, but Gina was working, I think, as an executive pastry chef at the I think it was called the Cub Room and had been suggested to Mario, maybe by Tom Colicchio or someone in the Gramercy like orbit. And, you know, her experiences were perfect for that. She was Italian-American like Mario. She really believed in sort of the simplicity of food like Mario. So they opened in 1998. You know, I don't think that they ever had would have imagined that it had be, would become sort of the the iconic restaurant that, that it became. Um, but her desserts also really became sort of known for their simplicity, for their elegance. Gina was, was the type of person that really just didn't like things fussed with. Um, and so a lot of her desserts were really just like everything Mario would preach, simple Italian ingredients presented in a simple way. No swirly sauces, none of that. So she, in 2007, published Dolce Italiano, which was her first book. It was called Recipes from the Babo Kitchen. But honestly, a lot of those recipes were not from the Babo Kitchen. It was just used to sell the book. Um, and then in 2009, I believe, she won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Pastry Chef, which was a nationwide and is a nationwide award. And then and intermittently between those two times, she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. At the time that she was diagnosed, she was living and traveling in Italy, specifically in Rome, to research her second book, uh, which is the topic of my article. And so uh, fast forward to today and you you find a Word document in your inbox. Right. Um, so a colleague of mine, mutual colleague, um, sent me the file after I wrote a story for Edible Manhattan about Gina. And the story that I wrote it in Edible was really about talking about Gina's legacy in the in the aftermath of Me Too. It was sort of saying, like, why are we not thinking about these great women chefs who, you know, they're careers are over instead of just thinking that we need to reform things going forward. Let's look back and celebrate those legacies. So someone after that article came out, a friend of hers and a friend of mine sent me the file and it took me, I didn't open it for a year. First of all, I didn't even know it existed. So it was a shock to even to get it. But I think that there was really something emotionally because Gina and I were friends and I worked with Gina for 10 years at Babo that I really wasn't I just wasn't ready. And so when the early in the pandemic sort of became like a great opportunity for me to open it, to look at it and to read it. And one of the things that just blew me away was how beautiful the writing was. And it, it occurred to me that people knew they know Gina as a an accomplished chef, but that her legacy as an author is something that had been ignored. So Gina passes and the manuscript is in what condition and I guess the question is, is she passed and then the publisher who was going to publish the, the book kind of put it in a drawer and forgot about it? Is that the sense that you got from your reporting? My sense about it was that there was a difference of opinion throughout the process between her editor at, at Norton at the time where 
I think they wanted her to create like a straight cookie cutter book that was focused on recipes. And she was writing a book that was really travel essays and, and a cultural document that also included recipes, which I think we both can agree is exactly what people want today. But this was in 2008-ish uh, when she was working on the book. So I think that there was so she was sick through all this time, which made it very, very difficult, I think, for that back and forth. But I, I think that like a few years before her death, it was completed. It was finished. She submitted a, a manuscript that was done. And I think that at that point that the uh, publishers had decided that they didn't want to go ahead and publish the book. As far as the condition, I'm not a book editor, so I can't really tell you what I you know professionally think. But just as a casual observer, it seems like it is completely in in. Uh, finished form and ready to go. Um, there may need to be some editing, but I think that Gina wanted this thing to be published in the condition that it is currently in. Which takes us to the the current day where the story was published over a month ago and it was shared tens of thousands of times and, and made its way all over the world. And we got comments from friends of Gina. You got comments from friends of Gina. So where are we now? Because there have been some updates and some developments since the story published. Where are we now? And are you... Are you, do you get a sense that we may actually see this cookbook come to life? I am optimistic. Um, so there, you're absolutely right that there were a lot of people reaching out. She was so well-loved in the restaurant community uh, and also, I think, in the food media community. I think a lot of people also recognize, like I do, that she's somebody whose career was probably overlooked by the kind of grandiosity of, of Batali and Bastianich and that you know they also want to participate in kind of writing that wrong. So I've gotten a lot of messages from people in the food media industry. Uh, Kate Crater just published a beautiful piece on Bloomberg with one of the recipes from the book. Um, there is a a uh, website that's called Eat Your Books, I think, that that posted about it. And the person who runs the site reached out to Gina's sister and told her that messages were pouring in with people that were offering to help crowdsourcing and that they would use their site to do that. Um, and then also there have been conversations, which I'm most optimistic about, between agents and publishers that it looks like there is potentially an opportunity to revive and rekindle the project, only that the same challenges remain in terms of not having a live author to promote the book. Everything today with cookbooks seems to be designed around a tour and, and appearances around the country and around the world. And that's obviously something when you have an author that's passed away that isn't possible anymore. I, I hope, though, that there is some foresight into the future of books. I think the way she frames this book as a cultural observation of Rome. Um, we have the context of her time at Batat with Batali. And there's a lot of, there's a rich text here that I believe, um, you know, a publisher can mine from to create a really unique book. And then maybe you yourself could be the one speaking about the book or somebody from the family. And I do hope uh, this book is published. And I am optimistic as well. So I'd like to close with a couple recipes from the book that you just love and that you think, because I know in the piece you really do write about the quality of the recipe writing and how pastry in Italy is sometimes overlooked. And this book has maybe unlocked some 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 secrets. So what are some recipes you like? Well, one thing that really stood out to me is that how much Gina um, ties in 
uh, sacraments and religious things. Um, there are quite a few recipes, and I wish I, I had the names in front of me because if I, without, I, I might botch the names, but quite a few recipes. There's one called Torta di Margarita, and there's a whole story about Margarita of Savoy, and, and there's a lot of political discussions around it. But the ones that I really wanted to focus on for the story were, were specifically things that I remembered from the restaurant, which in this book, it's not the exact recipes from Babo. It's kind of like little, you know, twists and, and turns the fig budino, which she always made these beautiful pudding cakes, which were not like spoonable puddings. They were like, they almost taste like a bread pudding, but they were like actual cakes. Uh, the staff always went crazy when she would bring those out. She made wonderful semifredo. The book has one with honey called mille fiore honey um, and pistachios. You know, the, her cookies were amazing. There's an amaretti recipe in the book with a beautiful story about how she visited uh, a town in Piedmont where they're famous for amaretti. It almost seems like the town only produces amaretti. So just envisioning Gina traveling in Italy, rediscovering her roots and, and having this personal journey and bringing you along with it. I mean, it, it almost feels like a Netflix program or something like that. It's she, where, she probably would have had her own show yeah. if she would have, you know, seen Netflix, right? I mean, it, but again, it's at the time that she was writing this, this wasn't really something that was going on at the time, either in in you know visual media or in written media. So it really does feel to me like the publishing world would be absolutely out of their minds not to 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 pick this up. Well, let's hope. And we'll keep following the story. I, I believe there'll be a follow-up story on taste at some point. I think that there's much more to write. Adam Reiner, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Hiesel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.